Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds and our first a cappella session. Oh no. <laughs> so uh, today we're going to be uh, doing Infectious Disease Mysteries and it's hosted by Tim Leahy. Tim is an Associate Professor of Medicine and of Medical Education and he's Director of Education at TDI. He actually has many, many titles and much I could tell you about it, but he asked me to keep it short so that he could get right into the cases. And just before I start on that, today was also a culinary medicine presentation. Um, I hope you took a look at that, but we also have a quiz, and the quiz question today was list two whole grains and two refined grains and describe a strategy you use to incorporate more whole grains in your diet. And the winning entry was from Emily Diakow, who's a medical student here. And please come up and uh, get this gift. And what, and what she wrote was barley and farro for the whole grains and white flour and white rice for the refined grains. And thank you very much. Thank you so much. Okay. <laughs> Just kidding, too. All right, Tim, come up and talk to us. There are no conflicts of interest with today's presentation. Um, let's move it along. Also, your code for getting credit for today is VTQZ, which you can text in. It's not case sensitive, VTQZ. Thanks. All right. Uh, this is not on in the back, is it? Is it? No, it's not mic, is it? Yeah. There we go. All right. That sounds a little better. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so so I'm, I'm Tim Leahy, and, uh, and I'm an ID and HIV doc here, as, uh, as uh, Rich said. I'm just going to very briefly introduce the colleagues. Many magnificent things are being left off this list of, uh, of uh, personal properties. So Antonia uh, Altamare is the, um, uh, she tells me, the shortest, feistiest, and Italianist of the group. <laughs> um, she, uh, not necessarily in that order. And she is um, the hospital epidemiologist uh, here for 10 years on faculty since 2013 and also now co-director of the HIV program here. Uh, Jeff Parsonette uh, is a full professor uh, here since 1990 as a second ID faculty member at Dartmouth, and he has a great story to tell you about his fear of hookworms, but we don't have time to get into that. Um, <laughs> Michael Calderwood is, uh, for the next seven months, the newest ID faculty member. He joined us as hosp uh, regional, hosp uh, regional epidemiologist uh, from the Brigham in 2016. Uh, and uh, and uh, uh, we're going to take a little bit of that out for a spin today. And then uh, Brian Marsh is the uh, section chief and uh, the director of the Dartmouth HIV program and here on staff since 1995. So let's do this. Here's the format. It's a, it's a new format that uh, we're uh, trying out. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to give some brief cases that our panelists do not know about. And I'm going to ask you first what the answer is to the case. And then I'm going to ask the panelists to, to give their thoughts. We'll uh, unveil the, the answer and then give a couple quick pearls and move along. Uh, and then we're going to do that again. And I've got probably too many cases, and that's fine. We're just going to get through as many as feels right with the, the rhythm of the conversation. So I was thinking about how to know what cases to cover. Um, and I used two methods. One was that uh, since February of 2015, we've been doing e-consults. We've done about 435 of them. 
And uh, so I know what questions you have of us from the e-consult system. And so I've used the most common uh, questions to inform choice of topics. And uh, But I wanted to make sure that this was not only educational for everybody and dealt with our educational needs as expressed in that clinical uh, consultation service, but also that it gave me the opportunity to torture my colleagues. And so I put a smattering of zebras in there. They are chosen uh, to make them slightly uncomfortable, um, uh, but to still be educational uh, so that I have a job at the end of the day. Um, and so this is going to utilize an audience response system. And so I'm going to give you a question so that you can practice the audience response system. Um, so the, the question is, which infectious diseases diagnosis do you think was the most common uh, diagnosis in uh, e-consults? And up top, there are uh, uh, instructions for how to do the audience response system. So I'm now going to say something subversive. It's not the first time you've heard me do this, but please get out your phones. Please get out your laptops if you don't have a phone or don't want to use a phone. And I would like for you to interact with your electronic gadget during this talk. I encourage it. So... There are two ways that you could respond. On the left side, top of the screen, it tells you how you could use your laptop. You can, uh, I'm just making it bigger so I can see it. So you can um, use this address, and it'll give you a selection of questions. Or you can text this phrase to the number 22333, and then afterwards, for this, que this question and the next questions, you can just start adding in your, um, your answers. And that's not projecting correctly, so I'm just going to pop out and re-project it so you can see the whole slide. Um, there you go, 520. Awesome. See the, the response is coming in. Give you a couple more seconds since I messed with the screen. Close competition between Lyme disease and urinary tract infection, people. 50-50, give me a few more. Love the real-time excitement of this. <laughs> Somebody's chiming in for refractory C. diff. Here it is. Do I hear nobody from HIV infection? Nobody from staphylococcus? Outstanding. Well, consistent with my desire to uh, torture you, I'm not going to tell you the answer, but it looks like Lyme disease and recurrent UTI are your most favorite to date. Dr. Calderwood, I'd like to torture you first, sir. A 46-year-old uh, woman presents with two weeks of cough, <clears throat> fever, and increasing pleuritic chest pain. She has no past medical history, takes no medicines, works as a lawyer. She moved from Tanzania to the United States seven years ago. She's monogamous with her husband. She's a smoker, and they have a parrot at home. She has a low-grade temperature. Oxygen saturations are a little marginal, right-sided crackles, no HIV test on record, and a chest X-ray is shown. And I believe you will see the abnormality. The question is going to be, which of the following tests is least acutely indicated? And I'm going to ask you, the audience, first. And then before unveiling the answer, I'm going to ask Dr. Calderwood to give his august impressions. This is hard to look at the screen. Which of the following tests in that circumstance is least acutely indicated? A, prescribe doxycycline. B, prescribe augmentin. C, check quantiferon. D, check blood cultures. E, check an HIV serology or immunoassay, I should say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
You know, when you run an experiment, uh, the data you come back is really the first time you know whether it was a well-constructed experiment. And I'd like to pat myself on the back for inducing confusion because that was the purpose of this, this experiment. Which one is least acutely indicated? Fantastic. Well, Dr. Calderwood, in this circumstance, what do you think? <clears throat> So can you go back to the uh, information clinically? There we go. So we have a number of things on the history that are trying to lead us down the path of uh, zebras. Uh, we have someone that has come from uh, Tanzania, and so you're saying, well, could this be possibly tuberculosis? I don't have that high on my list. This is an acute uh, illness. You don't have uh, evidence of a kind of wasting uh, disease, you're not describing any uh, weight loss, night sweats, homoptosis, things like that. You know, well, it's interesting that uh, she has a period, and you would think about uh, psittacosis, you know, this is more likely a common uh, community-acquired uh, pneumonia. She has a little bit of a fever, but otherwise um, seems okay. She's got a low SAP, but is not requiring oxygen, is on room air. It sounds like uh, she probably can go home uh, from clinic with some therapy, and so then you're thinking, well, I need to treat community-acquired pneumonia with thought of atypical uh, pathogens. Um, and for the kind of walking pneumonia, historically we've used azithromycin. Um, there's been a move um, away from azithromycin just because of concerns of uh, lack of coverage for uh, a common pathogen, streptococcus pneumoniae, where we've had increasing azithromycin resistance. Doxycycline seems like a, a, a reasonable choice here for atypical uh, coverage. And so I would not, um, on first pass, look at this check of quantifiron. Um, and given that uh, all we have is a fever but otherwise not appearing septic, I wouldn't have jumped to um, blood cultures. And we have that she is uh, monogamous with no clear risk factors. Everyone deserves uh, an HIV test at some point, but I don't think that acutely that's indicated right here. So you, you gave me some good uh, thought processes about which antibiotic you liked, and then you uh, essentially talked about how all the other options have problems with them. So the, the challenge is which one is most problematic. Uh, so some of these things, like you said, blood cultures, you know, you think bacteremia is not super likely, mm -hmm. uh, but it's probably not bad to get it. Right. Would you so, say, so is there anything here that you'd say is not a good idea to do? Right. Well, I mean, I think what you're going to end up probably checking is a quantifiron, and you're going to have a positive quantifiron that may be suggestive of latent tuberculosis rather than active disease. We don't use it for diagnosing active disease. If you think this is active tuberculosis, we ought to be getting induced sputa. Um, but that, again, you'd want to know uh, on... Uh, entry to the country, uh, did she have a PPD, did she have a quantifiron at that time, kind of any history of exposure. Good. And is doxycycline superior to augmentin in the treatment of pneumonia? Uh, so augmentin is actually reasonable for um, community-acquired pneumonia. It is not going to have coverage for atypical pathogens, so it really kind of depends on what you're thinking. But we have both currently being prescribed. Um, I tend to actually prefer augmentin, but I can see the uh, favoring here of doxy. So. Yeah, so I like that. So just to hit some of the questions before touching on the, the pearls, the antibiotic choices I think are sort of discretionary. It's true that augmentin does not cover atypicals, but uh, uh, clinical trials have not always shown superiority of agents that cover atypicals over just beta-lactams, probably because you're going to get through that atypical pneumonia no matter what. This isn't true of Legionella, but this is not the story of uh, uh, Legionella.
Um, so you could pick either antibiotic, and I, I, I think. Um, uh, uh, blood cultures are unlikely to be positive, but in this circumstance probably not likely to harm. HIV serology in a patient who comes from a country with a 7% HIV prevalence is a good idea to do as a routine measure, not likely to be related to this syndrome. Uh, but good to know, uh, love to know that, standard of care to know her HIV serology if we don't have it. And a quantiferon would be good to diagnose latent tuberculosis. But I'd say that's the wrong answer in this context uh, for the reasons you said. I want to know if she has latent tuberculosis. She should have had some screening for latent tuberculosis upon immigration to the United States. But today, I really am not asking that question. I want to know if she has active tuberculosis, if I, am, if I want to get a diagnosis for the acute infection. But I don't actually think she has Tuberculosis. This doesn't sound like tuberculosis. But let's say I didn't want to be surprised. I want to be super, super conservative about finding tuberculosis. That's the wrong test. And so think about what it would do to you if you did that test. As you said, if I got a positive result on the quantiferon, which would be unsurprising in somebody who hails from Tanzania, well, does that have any relevance to her acute presentation? The most likely answer is no. It's probably just still community-acquired pneumonia and she has latent tuberculosis. Also, in the setting of acute tuberculosis, the sensitivity of a quantiferon is lower than if it was done outside of the acute. So my likelihood of detecting that long-term disease is lower today than it would be three months from now when I'm just sort of cleaning up the, the preventive uh, mess. So I think that's the wrong answer. And it's a, it's a common misconception as I'm thinking about tuberculosis, so let me get a quantiferon. I'd say look for tuberculosis, if, uh, the organism itself. So... Uh, the evidence looking for uh, the treatment of latent tuberculosis comes primarily from this 1982 uh, trial, the uh, IUAT trial, in which they had 28,000 people um, in different treatment groups in, uh, uh, indicated on this graph by the number of weeks that they took uh, uh, INH, either 52 weeks, 24 weeks, 12, or placebo. And you can see that the rates of the longer you uh, took treatment, the lower the rates of eventual tuberculosis were. And the six-month or 24-week was deemed to be the best regimen. Um, and that informs this algorithm, that if you've been exposed to tuberculosis, you have a 90% chance of developing latent tuberculosis and essentially <coughs> never getting sick. In the first two years, you have a 5% chance of getting active tuberculosis, and for the rest of your life after that, you have another 5% of getting chance of getting active tuberculosis. There are, by definition, no symptoms or signs of latent tuberculosis, and therefore you have to use immune responses, either a PPD or an IGRA, to get that answer. And then for active TB, as Michael said, you have to look for the actual organism, and you should suspect that if the syndrome is right, but you wouldn't expect it in this case. And for the reasons I said, don't use that test to look into active tuberculosis. So we treat to cure uh, active TB on the bottom, and we treat to prevent above. Dr. Altamare, a 26-year-old male, comes for a well visit. He's an exerciser, uh, vegan. He wears a seatbelt. <clears throat> rare alcohol, no other drugs, doesn't smoke. He's had condomless intercourse with five men in the last year. He had one episode of genital HSV when he was 16 or 18. Uh, normal examination, proper screening studies were done, including negative NATs for chlamydia and gonorrhea. As all U.S. adults should have, he had a negative, or he had an HIV test, and fortunately it was negative. Hep A, B, and new normal creatinine. Beyond a risk reduction conversation, which of the following will most effectively protect him from HIV. A, encouragement to be abstinent. 
B, tenofovir emtricitabine. C, dalutegravir lamivudine. D, valacyclovir. E, topical tenofovir. F, topical acyclovir. G, topical pro-2000. <coughs> Like, A is running off the screen. Oh, wait, maybe. What do you think? People are solidifying on this uh, B option, Antonio. What do you think? Uh, okay. So, um, which will protect him from HIV most effectively? So, obviously, the most effective prevention for that is abstinence, so mm -hmm. I would go with A. Um, but of those choices left behind, um, the strongest data is with oral tenofovir emtricitabine, or also known as Truvada, um, particularly in high-risk uh, couples. The studies were done in high-risk countries, uh, heterosexual countries, but we have data now in MSM. And the topical, I, I don't even know what the topical acyclovir, topical valacyclovir, topical pro-2000, they, um, the acyclovir derivatives were really for um, HSV uh, and HIV reduction because we know if you have herpes, you are more likely to transmit and get HIV. Um, but the data for preventing HIV transmission is strongest in the Truvada uh, studies. Uh, again, though, I would say A is obviously the most 100% foolproof. Antonia, if, if I may. Yes. I'm my cherished colleague. Here it comes. <laughs> you might as well. It doesn't say abstinence. It says encourage him to be abstinent. Okay. And, and you might as well encourage him not to breathe. Okay? That's why I said that one aside. <laughs> um, it would be B. Thank you. So, so I love this, uh, this team effort here. So, so Jeff, Jeff prevented you from, or, or, or uh, almost uh, pulled you back out of the trap that I set for you. If it were abstinent, that would clearly be the most effective one. It turns out that studies looking at the incidence of sexually transmitted infections in people for whom abstinence-only education was uh, used showed that that worsens outcomes in sexually transmitted infections. The encouragement to abstinent not only is useless, it's harmful. I, I'm not saying that I I don't educate people about abstinence. I'm just saying as an intervention, it's not an effective intervention. But abstinence, of course, if it works, is fully effective. Truvada is B. Uh, we're going to focus on that, but I wanted to mention uh, a couple other points because they relate to this topic. So C, are, those are other antiretrovirals. There are no other antiretroviral approaches to uh, preventing HIV infection currently FDA approved, although many are being studied, and so currently we only have Truvada as an option, but, but more are coming. And so that, that was, um, that's not one of the options that is going to be coming down the road, but it's uh, meant to distract you that way. Um, uh, Antonia discussed D. E actually has been studied in a randomized clinical trial, a topical antiretroviral called tenofovir, which is in uh, Truvada, has been shown to reduce the likelihood of HIV transmission. This is a drug in uh, KY jelly, basically, and, uh, but it's not currently available, and people are studying combination uh, lubricant approaches. Topical acyclovir has no role. And topical PRO-2000 was an experimental anti-HIV compound in lubricant, which was shown to increase the likelihood of HIV infection unexpectedly. 
So Tanofi variant tricytamine Truvada is highly safe and effective. And Antonio is right. So here are the national guidelines from 2014, put out two years after this product was FDA approved, on the heels of several uh, effective randomized clinical trials. Efficacy has ranged between 40 and 90 percent. It's highly effective in people who take it consistently. So those who are highly motivated to take it have uh, not perfect protection, but high levels of protection. Uh, safe. I think it's safer the longer we use it. It's usually covered by experience, even though uh, insurance, even though it's uh, expensive, and it's massively underutilized. Uh, approximately 15% of people for whom it's indicated are taking it. Uh, I think that this is a primary care measure. If you kind of create a bottleneck for patients who are at risk by requiring them to see an ID doc, then you're only giving this HIV prevention measure to those who can access an ID doc. So I think it should be a frontline provider um, primary care uh, measure. But in a period of transition, which notably in, in this area of the world has been very slow since the 2012 approval, ID support and interface with primary care practices makes sense. And these guidelines give you a really nice guidance on who, for whom it's indicated, how to do it, how frequently to monitor, et cetera. Boom. Case three, Dr. Marsh. Roll up your sleeves. For this 73-year-old female nursing home resident who has some confusion, uh, times a couple of days, no fever or pain, she is, uh, carries a diagnosis of dementia and type 2 diabetes as well as neurogenic bladder and UTI, and she takes metformin, lisinopril, and sertraline, and recently started on uh, denezapil for her uh, dementia. She is afebrile, hemodynamically stable, and demented, perhaps a little drowsy and has a Foley in place, but otherwise looks fine. Her UA shows nine white blood cells, and her culture grows two organisms, uh, both of them drug-resistant, VRE and Pseudomonas. And notably, a couple months ago, she had a urine culture that also showed the same Pseudomonas with the same susceptibility pattern. So the big question is, beyond reconsidering that Foley, what should you do? <clears throat> ERE and a highly drug-resistant pseudomonas for what was found in the urine culture. What do you think, Brian? You sort through this case. Bring it, Joe? Yeah, bring it. <clears throat> so, um, could you go back to the case for one more time? You bet. All right, so she, she does have a chronic Foley in place. Um, so uh, to jump, okay, why don't we go back to the options here again? We'll okay. work through them. So uh, if we felt that she were um, systemically ill with these two organisms, then we would need to treat them. And uh, we would need to treat them. Our, our options for treating them would be fairly limited. Um, phosphomycin is an attractive drug for treating resistant gram-negative organisms and should be considered for treating resistant gram-negative organisms causing uncomplicated urinary tract infections. So if she had cystitis 
phosphomycin would be a great option. Pseudomonas can be resistant to it, but uh, if you can't get sensitivity testing, again, she's if she's got just cystitis, you could try it and see what happens. But if she were systemically ill, febrile, you thought it was a urinary tract infection, she'd end up coming in and getting put on a, if she were an outpatient, an inpatient, sorry, uh, aracarbapenem, meropenem, uh, as an outpatient, I guess you could use erdapenem. And it was VRE, I believe, so if VRE, then you'd have to use linazolid. So you'd be stuck with something like linazolid and erdapenem if you had to treat systemic infection. So that's to say A alone, probably not, B not, C don't like it, D if she were uh, sick in the hospital, E if she weren't sick and had cystitis. So none of those sound attractive in this case. Um, so the question is really, uh, is this, uh, are these data useful? Uh, is the presence of nine cells significant? Is the presence of a low number of organisms in a urine culture significant? And the answer is probably not. Um, so you need to um, think about working her up for other, some other cause for her delirium. So I wouldn't repeat it. You're going to get the same results. Uh, I would uh, try to figure out why this woman is delirious, um, and it's probably, excuse me, some reason other than uh, uh, the bacteria. Um, totally agree. Quick, quick question for you. So, um, so first point on the Foley, just since uh, yeah. this is a big point on the inpatient side, um, if this has been in more than two weeks, that should have been uh, exchanged if it couldn't otherwise be removed before sending the urine culture. So by two weeks, 50% of urine cultures are going to be uh, positive. It's about 5 to 7% uh, per day uh, with a kind of high rate of bacteria that's often asymptomatic. So if this has been in for a long time, uh, you should have actually switched that out before sending. Just a quick question. Um, Erdapenem for pseudomonas? Hmm. Uh, if she'd been in the hospital, we'd have put her on meropenem. Don't particularly like erdapenem. Good point for pseudomonas, so uh, not a highly active uh, uh, agent. It's very active against most uh, resistant gram-negatives, but not a good drug for pseudomonas. Thank you. If you wanted to see um, uh, my esteemed colleague uh, Jeff Parsonet and I come to blows, uh, we could go into a deeper conversation of whether erdapenem is the devil, as I would contend, or if it is... Um, uh, just a fun lollipop, as Dr. Uh, Parsonet believes. Um, uh, I'd say that this drug that is once a day, one gram a day, so easy to remember, so easy to use, that has low MICs against the highly resistant drugs, is how we teach gram-negative rods to become resistant to meropenem uh, at a population level. But fortunately, in this case, it's irrelevant. See how I just won there? Because I have the microphone. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I agree. I don't think that the suspicion is high. I would worry about the uh, denepazil as the cause of uh, new drowsiness and delirium in this uh, already demented patient. And I think another cue, just the one thing that uh, you didn't mention in your otherwise perfect answer is, I, I'm always suspicious of polymicrobial growth in a uh, urine uh, culture specimen. That's almost never the true answer. It probably means that stuff was collected from the, an old specimen in the bottom of the bag. So in questions about recurrent U UTIs, I sort of often get a question about which drug should I use to treat this recurrent urinary tract infection. And I'd say the most useful response is typically to question the diagnosis. It's either wasn't indicated to get the specimen in the first place, it was just somebody who was a little confused for some other reason. 
or that was a contaminated specimen, like the example I gave, or it's something that causes white cells in the urine but isn't a, a urinary tract infection. Uh, so most frequently, the answer is don't treat that with anything. Occasionally, though, you do have people who have really difficult to manage recurrent UTIs. And then I think it's useful to have a few quivers, uh, arrows in your quiver for that. So if it's a young, healthy person who's getting recurrent, uh, particularly a woman who's getting uh, recurrent UTIs, sometimes behavioral changes such as postcoital urination or wiping front to back uh, can be helpful in uh, elderly, vulnerable, uh, medicalized patients avoiding catheters, if at all possible, is, is useful. And there has been a clinical trial looking at reduction in urinary recurrent urinary tract infections in postmenopausal women with atrophic vaginitis as one inciting cause. So these are some tricks you can use. And as Brian said, occasionally you do need to treat these things, and phosphomycin is a nice, uh, a, a nice trick. And occasionally with ID guidance, we will decide that that person can't be cured of their infection, and we may tolerate it depending on the clinical scenario. Tim? Yes, sir. Ah, yeah. Dave. Nursing homes will hate us, but uh, intermittent catheterization... Is yeah. Another option. Mm -hmm. That's right. Totally agree. All right. Uh, Dr. Marsh, I, I was going to torture you again. And this is my uh, reminder to say that I have eight questions and the opportunity to get you both, but I may not be able to hit you all depending on how fast we go. So my apologies in advance. I'm sure it's going to break your heart if you don't get twice. A 53-year-old man visits his daughter in Mali. He stays in tents times two weeks. He's a careful eater, doesn't eat anything uncooked, no sick contacts or animal exposures, and near the end of his trip five days ago, he had a temperature of 38, myalgias, and a painless skin lesion that looks like the photo on the right, and I have another one on the next page. Otherwise, he looks fine, and his labs uh, were drawn and showed no abnormalities under than just very subtle thrombocytopenia. And the question is, which treatment will likely, most likely kill the causative pathogen? And here's another picture of the lesion. So the little sort of scabby thing in the middle. Which treatment is most likely to kill this causative, the causative pathogen in this patient with that skin lesion coming from Molly? <laughs> this is how I know that not very many people have answered. <laughs> I'm looking at you. There we go. All right. What do you think, Brian? Shine some light. So, um, th uh, things to consider here are. Um, <coughs> Uh, potential exposures, so um, where is the patient and what may he have been exposed to, so the epidemiology. Uh, second thing to consider is incubation period, so how long has it been since the potential exposure to the onset of the illness, uh, <clears throat> which is often forgotten when we think about tropical infectious diseases and ill-returning travelers. Uh, is it too soon or is it too late for whatever diagnosis you're considering? Uh, uh, third, the host, and of course, primarily the syndrome. So uh, in him, he's been, the onset of this was, if I add it up right, about 10 days or so after arrival in Mali. So, uh, and also important to think is to not always assume that if someone is sick and they've, they're traveling in a tropical country that it's associated with the travel. Uh, having said that, 10 days uh, to onset of 
a cutaneous lesion with systemic symptoms, hard to think that that would have been acquired prior to travel to Mali. So it seems highly likely that this has been acquired in Mali. So um, uh, incubation period, therefore, of something from uh, zero days to 10 days, um, so we'll call it plus minus a week. So fairly short incubation period infection. Um, and fairly rapid onset, if I caught it right, of yeah, fevers, yeah, fevers, uh, headaches, myalgias, something like yeah. that, um, and a skin lesion. Um, this immediately sounds like a rickettsial infection, um, and uh, uh, similar to Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and the, there are assorted rickettsial infections uh, around the world, and one simply has to um, pull out the books and look to see what rickettsial infections are present uh, in the geography that you're interested in. I don't know uh, which one is or ones are present in Mali, um, but that would certainly be one of the more likely possibilities. Um, the knee-jerk response to that is doxycycline. Um, we often refer to it as a doxycycline deficient disease. Yeah, so doxycyclinopenia, some, some geography is kind of the box this falls into. Anybody want to guess which rickettsial species is most likely here? Yeah, rickettsia africae, Dr. Altamare says. So this is African tick bite fever. And as, as Brian said, you know, it kind of depends on where you live. Here we're beset by, you know, the Ixodes tick and the, the Lyme, Babesia, um, Anaplasma. Uh, but you could travel, you know, south and you know, down and left on the map and uh, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, southern tick-borne associated illness uh, become issues. In Europe, there's a different uh, flavor of tick causing Lyme disease, slightly different presentation of Lyme disease. In the Middle East, slightly different uh, uh, syndromes like rickettsia uh, conneri is, is one of them. And across the middle of Africa, rickettsia africae, as you said, is, is the most common. And all of these uh, uh, are, are begging for doxycycline. This is actually an incredibly common, if you look in the geosentinel data about most common cause of fever in a traveler, malaria is still winning the game, but this is actually a very common presenting thing. It's also uh, underdiagnosed. Most people with malaria, most travelers with malaria will come to diagnostic attention. This one will go away on its own, but you'll just not feel great. So this is the amblyoma tick, um, uh, causing rickettsia africae with a mild syndrome that typically doesn't have much in the way of abnormalities at all, but it's got that distinctive Eshkar. And the options that I gave you um, are uh, 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 my reminder to uh, uh, mention some of the distractors. So this is not does not look like syphilis, but but a, a shanker comes to mind with an SCAR. It's not just routine uh, uh, Keflex, which this patient was on when we uh, got got him. Uh, there is a skin lesion associated with travel to Africa and exposure to fresh water uh, associated with uh, uh, schistosomiasis, which you could treat with uh, praziquantel to avoid later problems. Uh, mycobacterial infections, really ulcer, could be treated with linazolid and amikacin, but it doesn't look like this, and this isn't the typical location. And uh, I forget what I had in mind for superflux. Oh, anthrax, uh, that you know, painless escar. That's probably the closest in appearance, but the story is not quite right. But if it was a sheep herder who's got the hides over his shoulder on the board's question, you should guess Cipro. <laughs> okay. So that's African tick bite fever. Dr. Parsonet, you know it was coming. Lyme disease.
42-year-old from New Hampshire feels tired and diffusely achy two years after an acrimonious divorce. I bet it's Lyme disease. Thanks for seeing me on such short notice, Dr. Parsonette. Past medical history is notable for depression. She's on Zoloft. She does not exercise or smoke, occasional alcohol and marijuana, no injected drugs. On examination, she is uh, pretty normal looking except for obesity. Labs are normal and she's HIV negative. Should you check a Lyme serology? And uh, let me ask you guys the question and then uh, we'll get Dr. Parsonette's thoughts on Lyme disease. Uh, go. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one? No one? What would you say are the top five Lyme pitfalls, Dr. Personnel? Um, in no particular order. One of the uh, biggest problems we have is that when a patient presents with a, it wouldn't pertain to this case, but if a patient presents with a rash, during the right time of year when we uh, acquire Lyme disease. Um, I've seen many times where someone will do Lyme serology, and then if it comes up negative, they'll say, okay, it's not Lyme. We have to remember, so the first pitfall is that it takes about a month uh, before serology reliably becomes positive. So Lyme antibody testing is not a useful test in the setting of acute Lyme disease. You make a diagnosis of Lyme on the basis of the clinical history, exposure to ticks, possible tick bite or a known tick bite, and the characteristic rash. So that's, that's a major pitfall. A second pitfall is um, interpretation of Lyme IgM. This is something that we see dozens of consults of a year and turn away many. When someone who has nonspecific, not very suggestive symptoms like this gets Lyme testing and comes up with a negative Lyme IgG, but a positive Lyme IgM. It's not a very good test, and it's only of utility in the first four to six weeks after acute illness. Um, I, I think we shouldn't even offer the test here because it generates so much concern. So, so misinterpretation of Lyme IgM. Uh, major pitfalls in uh, presentation. Let's see. Treatment and diagnosis. Treatment and diagnosis. Well, we're all aware of the uh, tremendous controversy that's been generated uh, over through the last 20 years about long-term treatment of Lyme disease. Um, it's a misconception that Lyme is difficult to treat. It's very responsive to antibiotics. If antibiotics are given at the appropriate dose and by the appropriate uh, route for, for the indication, there is no good compelling evidence that this organism persists following an adequate uh, course of therapy. Um, let's see, other pitfalls. Uh, I, I think that with any, this is a general test, with, with, with any disease, if you have a low prior probability of illness, then the test is likely to, more likely to yield a false positive than a false negative. I think we can talk about when you might do Lyme testing in a person such as this. Um, I, I think another common misconception pitfall is that Lyme testing is unreliable. That's what you'll hear all the time, that Lyme testing is unreliable. It's really a very good test. It's, a, it's an antigenic organism, and most people who, uh, I'd say everybody really who has chronic infection will have a positive test. Um, the reason it has this bad reputation is because a lot of people have done this testing early on on people with Lyme, so people think, oh, it can be false negative. The other reason it's not a great test is because once you, 
once you've had Lyme disease, you test positive forever. So it's not really a good test in that way. But under certain circumstances, it is a good test. I'm not sure I would actually agree that there's no basis for doing Lyme in this case. If this is a person who's seriously uh, bothered, who's going to shop for other doctors, uh, I think that a, a negative test in a patient like this might actually be helpful in, and it's going to be negative, it might actually be helpful in help steering this patient towards other possible causes for her illness. So I don't know if I did five, but those are some of the ones that come up a lot. Um, just a, on that last point, if it's positive, what would you do? Because, you know, about what, four or if five If she had an unequivocally be. positive Lyme IgG, I think that a past history of Lyme disease is, is an indication for treatment if it's never been treated. So if she were to present with six or seven IgG bands, I don't have any reason to think it's the cause of her illness, but I, th I think some people would advocate treatment in that situation. Yeah, I like that. So that's it's a it's a it's there's not as much data on that as there is for you know specific treatment of it, but it's you know expert consensus, uh, which includes you sitting over a boiled chicken, making the expert consensus would say that's a reasonable thing to do. So inappropriate testing you talked about, we had actually really similar uh, tests over treatment. So the post Lyme syndrome, mistaking that as chronic Lyme syndrome, and doing what I would say would be human experimentation, giving antibiotics for people with fibromyalgia. Missing co-infection is, is one that I thought about. You know, it's good to think about. If there's a, a rip roar in hepatitis or a notable hemolytic anemia, you want to think about anaplasma or babesia, respectively. The other thing that uh, is uh, easy to think of if you're, um, uh, you know, have preparation like I did in advance is, you know, if somebody comes in with complete heart block from Lyme disease, that is expected to resolve on antibiotics. And so occasionally we'll be running down the hall saying, don't put that pacemaker in, just, just give the ceftrioxone and it'll be fine. And then... Um, and interesting that we mentioned this in the same order, inappropriate testing is, uh, just to remind you, a big problem. So Jeff mentioned the plausible syndromes that should trigger consideration of Lyme disease. These are the major ones. And um, essentially, if it's plausibly Lyme disease and you think it's just the blues, stop there. You're done. No reason to add this confusing test in. Sometimes, as Jeff said, the conversation has become complicated and it can be kind of a let's just put this to bed maneuver. If it's early Lyme disease, though, then there really isn't a reason to treat, I mean, a reason to test. You should just treat because your test is not going to be helpful. On the other hand, if you think it might be Lyme, but it's not early, then you test for Lyme. And if that's negative, then you're done. As Jeff said, it's a very sensitive test. If it's positive, you're going to get a positive confirmatory test by default. And if the testing and your clinical syndrome all add up to, yeah, I think that's Lyme disease, I'm going to treat it, you should treat that as indicated. And I drew a picture of doxycycline, which is almost always the answer. But there are some examples like carditis or meningitis that we'll treat with uh, uh, ceftriaxone. <coughs> So, so now, uh, yeah, Michael, uh, can I, do you mind if I skip on? Because I want to get to a little more zebraness. So uh, Dr. Parsonette and Altamore, I thought this time we would have a grudge match and see who can uh, hit the buzzer faster. A 22-year-old man who's on break for seven days uh, from an, uh, being on the National Guard in Iraq uh, develops cough, fevers, and aches that have been there for five days, and he's just getting sicker and can't handle it anymore. He's otherwise healthy, but does smoke. Lots of alcohol while here on break, but not previously. In Iraq, he works near a garbage dump, and he just talks about the blowing winds of dust. He uh, got his recommended pre-travel shots, as all people in the armed forces do going over there. He has low-grade temperature, uh, tachycardia, a little bit hypoxic, bilateral crackles, but no rash or lymphadenopathy. And his labs are notable for leukopenia, thrombocytopenia, and a rip-roar in hepatitis. 
and he has bilateral infiltrates on his chest X-ray. So the question is, which of the following pathogens is the most likely culprit? Are you ready to stand up and, and yell the answer? You guys ready? Like, to get ID docs that excited, it's, I mean, you basically have to talk about antibiotics to get there, and I'm not doing that. So which is the most likely culprit? Don't say it yet. Let's let these guys do it. I don't actually want you to jump up and shout because I know that's implausible. What do you guys think it is? Do you like the multiple choice queuing that it starts with a C? So pneumonia and hepatitis, a little bit of thrombocytopenia, and somebody recently come back from Iraq. What do you guys think? I'll defer to Antonio. I was thinking it could be Middle East respiratory syndrome, but, uh, that which, you haven't, which you haven't put up here. Mm -hmm. But I don't know how often that causes hepatitis, and I've, I've never seen a case. And... Uh, <laughs> With with uh, coccidioides, I'm I'm not familiar with that degree of hepatitis either. Right. And and I know that this is a classic presentation of something, and I'm just uh, forgetting what they're all coming back with. But I should know. What do you think, Antonia? What? What do you think, Antonia? I think I'm leaning towards uh, Q fever, coccidiella, uh, because this is a known um, exposure in our. Um, military who go to dusty places um, and inhale dusty things along with other um, organisms. I actually was on the fence as to whether it could have been histo because we've seen some histoplasma from foreign countries and can present acutely even with a hepatitis and a fulminant pneumonia. But given the choices that are up there, I don't think it's coccidiomycosis given the uh, region and the presentation. Uh, but I do think it's likely coxiella. Does it feel right? So this reminds me of a story back when I was a pup, uh, two years into my attending years here. And uh, a Saturday night, I get called in with the ID fellow to see this case. And uh, we, we get super excited. This was when we did actually jump up, down, and shout. And, and we wrote about the longest ID note you've ever seen with all the names of all these things. Not, not those names, actually, but, but lots of different uh, possibilities. Ordered, you know, half a gallon of blood to be drawn from this uh, poor hapless soul. Huh? Yeah. Thanks for noticing. Appreciate it. I look good in sunglasses, don't I? Um, so, uh, and, and, uh, and, and actually, overnight was when I lost my hair because uh, as the, the blood was, uh, the phlebotomists were coming to draw all of our differential uh, diagnosis labs, um, guys who looked like this rolled in uh, and uh, uh, absconded with the patient and took him to Walter Reed, which is by protocol where you go. I thought it was like he was some high, high level top secret uh, agent, but it was just that that's, that, that's how they take care of their, uh, their, their folks. And, uh, and then I kind of forgot about it. I was like, oh, that's a bummer. I didn't get to see the answer. It was really a cool case. And, uh, and then uh, I was just uh, scanning the literature, and I saw a typical acute fever in U.S. soldiers, including a case report from a New Hampshire hospital that had exactly those labs. And I realized, you stole my zebra! <laughs>
and he had, he had Q fever and got better on doxycycline. So this was, as Antonia said, there have been outbreaks of Q fever in soldiers. And if, uh, you know, uh, pulmonary renal syndromes are actually pretty common, but pneumonia plus hepatitis is an uncommon combination. And, and it makes you doubt whether it actually is pneumonia. But if it truly is pneumonia, Psittacosis and Q fever are good things to think about. Would you just say one word about the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome and how much we're seeing now, whether we should be concerned? Uh, yeah, we're not seeing it uh, uh, hugely here, but it is uh, one of the locations that we are in active surveillance about because that's a potentially deadly spreading syndrome. Do you want to get into that? Yeah, I can, I can brief, briefly tell you about that. So most of the, um, the cases are coming from the Arabian, Arabian Peninsula, and the risk factors have been exposure to camels. Um, and in intimate healthcare settings or healthcare providers. So the transmission is somewhat limited person to person, but those in highest contact with ill patients are the ones getting it. And so it is on our high threat infection list and things we screen for here, because if the patient ultimately ends up here, we're at highest risk of uh, transmission and it can present with fulminant respiratory failure and has about a 50% chance of death. So this is a quite morbid um, disease. So if these military recruits were out in the middle of the desert and near camels, I definitely would have it on my differential. Awesome. All right. Now I have a question. We have two more cases left, and I think time for one more, I think. We might be able to do two. But it gets into, do you want bread and butter or zebra? So I, I throw it out to the audience. Would you like, would you like blood or education? Which, which one feels like more fun? You want the zebra? Education. All right. Education. We'll do it quickly. Uh, so this is the uh, Calderwood Marsh grudge match. A 62-year-old woman develops diarrhea and new fever halfway through a course of moxifloxacin for diverticulitis for which surgery is planned. She has common variable immunodeficiency and this recent history of diverticulitis. She takes monthly immunoglobulins for the CVID and has been prescribed augmentin as an outpatient, but upon admission to the hospital, they started our favorite, uh, Vosin. Social history... Uh, she doesn't smoke, and she does have a family history of colon cancer. Her examination uh, shows, reveals her to be afebrile, um, without a rash, and her abdomen seems appropriate for the recent surgical intervention. She has no erythema, marked leukocytosis, and all cultures are negative. And this patient's new acute infection is likely to be treated by which of the following agents? You'll guess the diagnosis on the next page. The type, typing is small, so A is vancomycin, B is intravenous vancomycin, C is intravenous metronidazole, D is oral metronidazole, E is oral vancomycin, F is oral fidaxomycin, G is continuation of the oral moxie, and H is fecal transplant. What do you say, Dr. Calderwood? How are we doing? So, um, so the first point, just to take off the table, is uh, intravenous uh, vancomycin. The uh, infection that uh, we're talking about here is C. difficile uh, colitis, and so none of the uh, IV vancomycin is going to get into the uh, colon, uh, so that will not be uh, the proper treatment. We, at times in severe disease, will add intravenous uh, metronidazole, so I'll come back to that in a second, but uh, um, we've talked about this a lot. Essentially, uh, everyone should now be getting oral vancomycin as the preferred treatment for C. difficile 
Um, the guidelines uh, that I'm told are about six months from being published in their revision uh, will specify oral vancomycin even for uh, mild disease. Uh, it is superior to uh, metronidazole, um, not in treating the acute illness, but because of a lower rate of recurrence. Uh, the reason for that is if you think about uh, oral metronidazole, uh, the majority of that 99% is actually absorbed in the proximal small bowel. And the only reason it gets to the site of uh, treatment is that during active colitis, you have uh, vascular permeability, and the drug uh, gets into the colon that way. But as your colitis resolves, you have lower and lower amounts of drug in the colon, and so you actually have essentially no metronidazole by the end of the treatment course, and so you're not getting a long enough duration. That's why you have a higher rate of recurrence. One other uh, point to get to before we go to the next question is this patient is already on moxifloxacin for a diagnosis of uh, diverticulitis. Mm -hmm. So how long would you treat the C. diff? Right. So I was going to come back to that. And so uh, there was a discussion of moxifloxacin and augmentin. Both of those are kind of high-risk uh, antibiotics. Um, this patient also was on uh, piperacillin and tazobactam, and there's a lot of kind of competing literature about that. Um, older literature suggested it might be somewhat protective. It's now thought that it probably is also a risk factor as well. Um, so antibiotics are a risk factor for C. difficile. In this case, um, when we think about treatment duration, um, um, my recommendation is for treating uh, C. difficile, it's a minimum of 14 days, 10 days beyond uh, resolution of symptoms. And so a lot of people go too short. And the other thing is if they're on another antibiotic, you want to extend the vancomycin seven days beyond the uh, treatment course of your other systemic <laughs> antibiotic should it be needed. And it sounds like in this case that could be discussed. That's great. So just to show a couple of the data points, and I'm going to rush through these, uh, most studies have not shown acute superiority of oral vancomycin over uh, oral metronidazole in most people. There is a study showing vancomycin superiority uh, to metronidazole, but that's the exception to the rule. But if you do look in the subset of patients who have severe colitis, it has shown improvement. And as Michael said, recurrent uh, prevention of recurrence is the major signal here. So here's uh, one study of uh, 1,500 or so people um, suggesting some superiority of vancomycin that was most pronounced in the uh, severe cases. And as uh, Michael mentioned, if you can't stop the antibiotics, there's this retrospective study that's informing practice showing that those given oral vancomycin compared to those not given an antibiotic had a much lower likelihood of recurrent C. diff if they got those antibiotics around the time of a recent diagnosis of C. diff. So as Michael said, extension of oral vancomycin for about a week beyond the other antibiotic if uh, uh, is reasonable. All right, let's get to the fun, the, uh, the, the last zebra. Can I add one point? Or? Uh, can you do it in 30 seconds? Uh, stop the other antibiotics. Good. So, <laughs> so, so your corollary from the other point is that Michael was making is that the sooner you can stop the other antibiotics, the better. So in your admit note, please write, patient has already had seven days of moxifloxacin, which is adequate therapy right. for their uncomplicated diverticulitis, we will stop all antibiotics. In fact, you could argue whether you really actually need antibiotics for all cases of diverticulitis anyway, right? So, so yeah, uh, it, for many reasons, you could probably stop it. So this 42-year-old has untreated HIV infection, very low CD4 count of 42, viral load of 241, reports with uh, 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 newly to the medical system with these skin lesions. Here in this CT scan, and that bronchoscopic finding showing some dark spots in the trachea. And so the, uh, the question uh, for, uh, is, uh, this syndrome is caused by which of the following agents? 
That's awesome. I love it. Yeah, that's good. I thought I was going to confuse you guys a little bit more with that, so uh, snaps to you. So who wants to – so it feels like we have two contenders here, and I think those are the right top two contenders. Uh, uh, who wants to – do you want to take this on, Jeff? How did this patient acquire HIV infection? Uh, we think it's either through sex drugs or uh, perinatal transmission, but we're not sure. Correct. Okay. <laughs> No. Why, why do you ask? It's actually an important question for this yes, diagnosis. Yes, because so this, what, you tell me, how did he acquire it? Well, I think this is a, uh, a probably a man who's had sex with men, and that he has uh, had sexual transmission of the agent that causes Kaposi sarcoma. This looks most to me like uh, Kaposi sarcoma with multiple pulmonary and skin lesions. So um, why don't we just leave it at that and and tell us what's going on with him? I mean. Uh, the Bardella would be, uh, you know, uh, uh, we, we just don't see this very much anymore, but it could, it could be Bardella infection, I suppose, but it looks like Kaposi's. Yeah, so that was the, the, you know, so you could have those skin lesions, that sort of vascular, you could say, is that a vascular-like-looking appearance? Is that Bartonella, Hensley? Could this be peliosis hepatis, and he's got liver lesions associated with that? But but a pneumonia-type syndrome is not yes. particularly classic. Yes. And then speaking of the pneumonia, uh, this patient's CT scan is pretty classic for disseminated Kaposi uh, sarcoma. By the way, if you want to um, really impress the medical students, you should say that with an SH on the end because it's a Hungarian name. Kaposi sarcoma, that's, that's, how you, that's how you take it to a whole new level. Um, so note that there's peri, uh, peribronchial uh, sort of edema or, or, or masses. This is really classic. This is a kind of a vasculotropic uh, organ, uh, 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 sarcoma that likes to be near the airways because of the high oxygen tension, we think. And thus, uh, these skin lesions uh, are probably just stuff uh, coming in from that. And uh, uh, this is something that we don't see super often anymore because antiretroviral therapy is so potent. But if you look at the average CD4 count of presentation across the world, it's still quite low. So in the United States, it's in the 300 to 350 range. Um, and, and this can occur at that CD4 count, although typically it's below a CD4 count of 50. But late presentation like this uh, uh, occurs. We've had a couple of cases. I've had a couple of cases like this in the last several years. So it, it and, and the amazing thing about this is that when you start them on antiviral therapy for HIV, HIV, these things melt away as if they were as if you were giving chemotherapy. Yeah, every once in a while you still have to do chemo, but but I haven't done it in in more than ten years. Yeah, and the point of route of transmission. Yeah, so so uh, Jeff is right that that it's it's almost never seen that somebody has disseminated Kaposi sarcoma who has an HIV transmission risk factor other than men who have sex with men. And so, why why is that relevant, Brian? Uh, why? why? Uh, that's irrelevant. Just making the point that for reasons that we don't entirely understand, uh, it, in the U.S. it is almost entirely seen in uh, people with HIV who acquired it through sex with men. Um, heterosexual transmission is uh, a very rarely, we very rarely see KS. Yeah, so it's an interesting kind of unanswered mystery in the, in the AIDS context um, that fortunately we are losing the ability to answer because we don't see it as much. Yes, Don? In your um, presenting description, you didn't say anything about, him, about this patient being a man. I think you implied that with construction worker, and I challenge it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I challenge that I implied it. <laughs> I, essentially, I gave you his demographic information via the diagnosis, but you're right. You had to intuit it, and that was the, the point of it. That's right. Um, so, in summary, in latent tuberculosis, 
test for latent tuberculosis if you think they have latent tuberculosis, but look for the organism itself if it's active. There is no role for quantiferin or PPD if it's acute. Pre-exposure prophylaxis is safe and highly effective and highly neglected uh, thing that I think we should be uh, uh, implementing across our primary care practices. Question the diagnosis of a recurrent UTI. I'd say in, in my consult experience, that's typically not what they have. In Lyme, test only if you think that they have it and be careful of some of the pitfalls that we talked about, including inappropriate testing or treatment. And in C. diff, as Michael said, treat for 10 to 14 days uh, and extend that if they have ongoing uh, antibiotics. So thank you for the e-consults and the inpatient consults and the outpatient consults. We're always here to help, and I hope you understand why I'm so happy working with these spectacular colleagues.